Good evening. We are so glad that you are here. You know, after a worship like that, when we worship with all our hearts, I'm literally out of breath right now. So, okay, give me a moment. Holy Spirit, I need you right now. But you know, when we're, we, we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and, and fill our hearts, fill our rooms, fill our homes, and the Holy Spirit does. And we're so thankful for moments like this where we get to worship with all our strength, and I just am so thankful that you're able to join us like this. You know, and I was praying about, okay, for our tithes and our offerings. Like, what do I talk about? What should I, what should I say about our tithes and our offerings today? And I just felt God press upon me. Just let them know what's been going on. You know, because yes, we're not gathering yet, but we can still meet like this. Yes, we're not gathering in person yet, but our volunteers are still able to serve. Yes, we're not gathering yet, but this past Sunday, there was four salvations online. Online, people are still watching and they're still being saved. Every week, we have people coming to know Jesus. And those are just the ones that said, you know, I I did commit my life to Jesus. There's many more out there that maybe never sent us an email or a text or never told us, but they did. And that's because of people like you who partner with the Lord and give of your tithes and your offerings. Yes, we're not gathering yet, but the Lord is still moving. And this Saturday, or this Sunday, in fact, we have our um, our resource center that's going to be open from 9 a.m. till 12 noon. So you will be able to come and get more journals, purchase new Bibles. Maybe you're just like, you know, this whole season I've been journaling and everything and it's all written up already. I need more. So our resource center is going to be open um, this weekend. So we just wanted to remind you of that. And for more information on anything else, just go look um, at our website or our app. But yes, we can still do things like that because the Lord is still moving. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of church, even if it's not the way that we used to do it, God, and maybe it'll never go back to the way that we used to do it. So let us do it better. Grow us so that we can reach your people and partner with you in reaching your people, Lord. We just thank you for for allowing us to still meet even if it's online, God, because you are not restrained by by technology. You use it and you still further your kingdom, God. So thank you for letting us be a part of what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, Pastor Lindsay will be talking about the book of Philemon. So let's take a look at this video. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. 
And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line. I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships. Which moves Paul onto his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus. And so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison. And even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus. Which moves Paul on to his bold request, that Philemon receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. 
And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. Well, good evening, family. I am so stoked to be here with you tonight. And just like this video said, the book of Philemon is no joke. It is no joke. It's not to be underestimated by its size or its length. And um, tonight, we're just going to dive right in. We are going to take a look at one of the major themes of the book, which is reconciliation. Now, let's talk about the overall idea of reconciliation right up front. So, this is a huge theme in the book of Philemon, but it's also a big thing in the body of Christ. Now, here's why. This is what I believe. If we can't get it right in here, in the church, if we can't get it right in the body of Christ, there's no way we're gonna get it right out in the world. If we can't figure a way to get along with each other and fix relationships here in the church, in the body of Christ, there's no way we're gonna do it outside of these walls. There's no way we're going to do it in the world. And, um, and it, it always begs the question, if that's the case, if we can't get it right, why would people want to step foot in the church? Why would they want to come? They're just going to see a bunch of fighting. They're going to see, like, hey, she talks about her at work, behind her back. Like, why do I want to come up here? And that's why I believe this idea of reconciliation is such a huge concept for us to grasp and one that we have to learn as Christians, as believers, to do well. And so that's what we're going to um, talk about tonight. And if I can be super honest, I think that there are some people who don't believe in Jesus, who aren't Christians, that forgive quicker than we do. There are people who don't believe in Jesus and who aren't Christians that can reconcile relationships faster than we can. And family, we of all people should be the best at it. 
We should be, why? Because we ultimately understand what it means to be reconciled. Because through Christ, we were all reconciled with God. Every single one of us was reconciled. And so out of everybody, we should get this right. We should understand this more than anybody. And, and I get it, we're human, we're not all the same, we're all imperfect. I'm gonna say that again. You're not perfect. I'm pretty close, though. I'm just kidding. I am probably like the furthest thing from that, right? But the fact is that because of our differences, because of our imperfections, there's going to be relational conflict. That's just the reality of life. There's gonna be relational conflict. People are gonna hurt you, and you are going to be the one to hurt people. It's just a fact of life. And so it's not a question of how do we avoid personal conflict and interrelational conflict. It's a question of what do we do when it happens? How do we handle it? Do we just sweep it under the rug? Do we, do we just keep a running scoreboard in our mind? What do we do? Do we hold grudges? What do you do when relational conflict arises? Because family, just because we're believers, just because we love Jesus, does not make us exempt from any of those relational conflicts. They will happen. And so right off the bat, you can go ahead and write this in your notes, is reconciliation is always the goal. Reconciliation is always the goal. And let's pause for a second, because I want to make something clear here. See, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference. Now, forgiveness is completely one-sided. Forgiveness is one-sided. Me being able to forgive someone who hurt me is not dependent on what they're gonna do. It's not dependent on if they're gonna tell me they're sorry. It's not dependent on if they're gonna change their actions. Me being able to forgive someone who hurt me is completely my choice. It's not dependent on them, and sometimes we get that twisted. Sometimes we think, I'm not gonna forgive them until they apologize to me or I'm not gonna forgive them until they change. But family, forgiveness is a one-sided thing. Reconciliation is a two-sided thing. It takes both parties to be reconciled. Both people have to be willing to be reconciled. They have to do their part. Now, forgiveness can be a part of reconciliation, but reconciliation doesn't always follow forgiveness. And here's what I mean is you can forgive someone and still not have the relationship mended. You can forgive someone and it still not be good because, again, forgiveness is a one-sided thing. Now, in the book of Philemon, Paul strongly encourages Philemon to be reconciled to his runaway slave, Onesimus, right? And tonight we're going to look at reconciliation from three perspectives. We're going to look at it through the lens of Onesimus, we're gonna look at it through the lens of Paul, and we're gonna look at it through the lens of Philemon. Because if you haven't already, and I'm sure most of us have by now, you'll find yourself in one of these three positions when it comes to relational conflict. And so we're gonna set the stage here. Now we all know that Onesimus is, is a slave that belongs to Philemon, and he has run away. There's something that has happened, he's done something, it's not clear what it is, but he's run away. And on his runaway journey, he has met Paul. And now he's with Paul, and while he's with Paul, he meets Jesus. And so now Onesimus is a believer, and like the video said, Paul knows Philemon because Philemon is a leader in the church of Colossae. 
And so what does Paul do? Knowing that Onesimus belonged to Philemon and Onesimus has run away, Paul writes this letter. And he is appealing to Philemon and encouraging him to take Onesimus back. So let's pause for a second because why does Paul write to Philemon for him to be reconciled with Onesimus? It could possibly be because under the Roman law, for Paul, for anyone who showed hospitality to a runaway slave, there was a consequence. There was a legal consequence that he would face. That could possibly be one reason why Paul writes this letter and encourages Onesimus to go back and Philemon to take him back. But what I believe is a little bit more is that, is that Paul understood that in the body of Christ when dealing with believers. Now you have to remember that this book is written to a believer about another believer, okay? This is a huge thing, and we have to remember this because in this context of this book, we're talking about what's happening in the church, in the body of Christ between two believers. And so um, Paul knew that reconciliation was the goal. And Paul could have easily kept Onesimus with him, right? Take a look at what he writes in verse 12 and 13. He says this, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Paul could have kept Onesimus. He was in prison. He could have used all the help he could get. But he says, I'm sending him back to you. Now for some of us, maybe you're not in a relational conflict right now. Maybe you're not fighting with anyone, you're not beefing with anybody, but maybe people are coming to you to vent about what's happening. Maybe people are coming to you to vent about problems they're having with other people. What do you do? Are you a listening ear? Do you take sides? Like, what do you do, right? I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, we go and we vent to people expecting them to take our side, right? Like, I do this with my husband sometimes. Like, I'll tell him what's going on, right? And I'm like, this happened, and they did this, and they said this, and blah, 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 and I'm expecting him to take my side. But what does he do, being the godly man that he is? Like, he gives me advice, he tries to fix it, or he, like, helps me to see another perspective, right? And I sit there, and I'm like, Bro, all I wanted you, well, like, was for you to take my side. Like, that's it. You're just supposed to be on my side. That's, that's all. I didn't want your advice. Just be on my side. Like, that's what I wanted. Anyone else? No? Okay. All right, moving on. Just me. Well, anyway, <laughs> Paul, Paul, what Paul does in sending Onesimus back and asking Philemon to receive him back is he is pointing them both to Jesus. He's pointing them both back to Jesus. And so for someone who's helping other people in their relational conflict, that's our job. That's our job as believers, especially when we're helping other believers. Point them back to Jesus. Point them back to Jesus. You can fill that in in your notes. Is point them back to Jesus. Now, get this. This is the crazy part is Paul's writing this letter, right? And he writes it to Philemon to tell him all this stuff, guess how the letter gets delivered? Onesimus. He sends the letter with Onesimus, and he tells Onesimus to take it back. Now, I was thinking about this because um, there's a few things. So the first thing is this. Now, during that time, 
like in the Roman Empire, there were lots of slaves, okay? So there's lots of slaves, and the Roman Empire was afraid of a slave revolt. And so what they did was, for anyone who ran away as a slave, there was a severe consequence. Now, the master of that slave basically had no limits. They could do whatever they wanted to to punish their slave. And what was often a common punishment was crucifixion. That was often a common punishment or branding with a hot iron, and they would brand the letter F on their forehead for fugitive. And that was common, and it was commended in that society, in the Roman Empire. And so can you just imagine Onesimus? Like, he knows this. He knows this. And he has to walk this letter back to Philemon. I'm not sure how far it was from where he was with Paul to where Philemon was, but I can only imagine like the internal like turmoil and like the, the talk that he would have with himself, right? Because how many of you know when you've wronged someone and you know that you have to go make it right? If you're like me, sometimes I try and talk myself out of it, yeah? Like, <laughs> nah, no need. I don't they know I'm sorry, right? Or oh, my life's better off without them anyway, right? You just cut them off, like, oh, so too much drama, I don't want to deal with it, like, whatever. And you just leave it, and you can talk yourself out of it. But Onesimus makes this journey back to Philemon. And I can tell you this, is that it took courage, and it took humility for him to willingly walk this letter back, not knowing how Philemon would respond. Not knowing if Philemon would do what Paul asked or if the day he returned to his master, if that would be the last day of his life. He had no idea. But here he is, in all the humility that he could muster, walking back to his master to say that he was wrong and to deliver this letter. And, um, man, it takes a lot to do that. If you've ever wronged somebody, if you've ever offended someone, or if you've ever had to mend a relationship because of something that you did, you know that it's tough. You know that it takes humility. I don't know about you, but I'm not always the first one to say I was wrong. <laughs> it takes me a minute, <laughs> right? But... <laughs> Like what Paul was asking Onesimus to do, and you can write this in your notes, is he was asking Onesimus to close the gap. He was asking him to close the gap between what he knew was right and then doing what was right. Now in this story, there was a literal gap, right? He knew he had to go back and he would walk. But there's this gap between knowing and doing. And they're completely different things. Because you can know what you need to do, you can know what's right, but it's a completely different thing to do it, right? Like, I know I should eat better, I know that's probably right. Mm, but I really love french fries and ice cream. And bread and pizza and soda, like, you know what I mean? Like, the list just goes on, right? And like, I know that I should exercise but, like, my house needs to be cleaned, and kids won't change their own diapers. I don't know why, but, you know, they just, that doesn't happen, and so someone has to do it, and, and, like, I know that I should do that, but I do other things, or, like, I know I should be nicer to her, but, God, did you hear what she said to me? Like, did you hear how she talked to me? 
She can dish it out. She can take it, right? We know the right thing, but there's a gap between knowing and doing the right thing. And what Paul was asking Onesimus to do was to close that gap. He was asking him to close that gap between knowing and doing, and I think that's one of the hardest things that Paul challenges us in this book, is to close that gap and to not just know the right thing, but to do the right thing. And maybe tonight that's where you are. Maybe you have wronged somebody. Maybe you have offended somebody. And now what you need to do is close the gap of knowing that you were wrong and knowing that the right thing to do is to be reconciled and go and do it. Or maybe you're in the position of Philemon. Now, Paul was asking Philemon to do something that had the potential to flip their culture and flip the society upside down. And let's take a look at verse 17. It says this, So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now think about this for a second. Paul told Philemon, if you consider me a partner, if you consider me a fellow believer or a coworker in the gospel, would you welcome him as you would welcome me? Now the relationship that Paul had with Philemon was not just like brothers and family, but it could possibly have been a a relationship of mentor and mentee. So there was not just brotherly love and affection for one another, but there was also a level of respect that Philemon had for Paul, which was completely different than his relationship with Onesimus. With Onesimus, he owned Onesimus. He could tell Onesimus what to do. Two very different relationships, and Paul is contending for Philemon to uh, not punish Onesimus, but to receive him back, to forgive his debt, and to treat him like he would treat Paul himself. Treat him like a brother. Now, in my mind, if I was Philemon, I would be like, yo, hold up. You want, wait, you want me to do what? Let's run that back a little bit. You want me to do what? Like, Paul, I'm not sure you understand how it works here. Like, I, I don't think you, un, you know the rules, right? And so we see that Philemon has a choice to make. He has a choice to make. Paul wasn't forcing him to do anything. Paul was just strongly encouraging him. He wasn't going to force him. And what he was asking him to do was something that was completely unheard of in their society, It would go against everything they knew. It would go against all relational and social rules. And then so it begs the question, why is this book in the Bible? Why is this book in the Bible? It seems like Paul is addressing a very personal matter to Philemon. And he is, you're right. However, Philemon is a leader in the church. He's a leader in the church. People knew who he was. He was a public figure. And people were probably watching his life very closely. They knew he had slaves. And they probably knew that one of his slaves had run away. And what Paul was asking him to do wasn't going to be a private thing. It was going to be a very public thing. Because people would know when Onesimus came back. And people would know what Philemon decided to do 
And in our terms today, what Philemon, what Paul was asking Philemon to do would probably go viral. It would flip everything upside down and it would be all over the place. Everybody would know about it. Paul knew that this act of reconciliation could change their entire community. He knew that it could transform their community and really what Paul was asking Philemon to do, as you can write this in your notes, is he was asking him to go first. Asking him to go first. Be the example. Be the example. Go first. Show people what reconciliation looks like. Not just forgiveness. Reconciliation. I love what this, the theologian Charles Spurgeon says. He says, transformation of the individual is the key to the transformation of society and the moral environment. In other words, it has to start with us. It has to start with me. If I want to see a transformation in the world, I have to be a transformed person first. I can't expect the world around me to change if I don't change first. Now, I do want to say this. Sometimes what happens in relationships and what happens in relation, relational confrontation is very painful, very hurtful. Some things we would never wish to happen on anyone. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. And sometimes in that healing process of that, you will need to seek professional help. But one thing that this video points out to us and it challenges us to remember is that at the cross, at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. It doesn't matter who wronged who or who did what to who, we are all equal and we all need forgiveness and grace and we all need to be reconciled to God. All of us. Jesus' death wasn't just for some of us. It was for all. All the world. Even people who aren't yet Christians all the world for God so loved the world not for who he deemed good for everyone now I understand that reconciliation is by no means easy and it does take two sides right two sides that need to be willing and so it can be messy it can be painful it can be uncomfortable there's probably going to be some tears. And it can be scary. I get it. It can take time. It can take time. But can I challenge us with this? Is that reconciliation is a choice. We have to choose that. Nobody's forcing us. But reconciliation is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice. It's something that we willingly have to do because the reality is, is you may never feel like being reconciled to someone. Just like you may never feel like forgiving someone. It's a choice that you have to make. But when we make that choice, God is glorified in that. And when we make that choice to be reconciled to someone, when two people make that choice, what we're choosing is to bring the reality of heaven and make it the reality of earth. That's what we're choosing. 
The way we choose to handle conflict will reflect who our God is. It'll reflect who he is. Because let me tell you, the outside world isn't watching, isn't looking for God when things are good in your life. They're going to be looking for God when junk hits the fan. That's where they're looking for him. How you handle it speaks about our God, how you handle those situations. And we don't need to be a leader in the church like Philemon for people to be watching. Your family is watching. Your coworkers are watching. Your community is watching. Your kids are watching. Now, I want to share this story, something that I realized recently, um, and I'm just going to be super transparent. And so uh, this weekend, uh, my husband and I experienced some relational tension. Just a fancy way to say we fought. Yeah, there's just beef. And uh, um, and I, of course, because I'm so, so perfect. Um, I uh, say, said lots of things without thinking and uh, lots of things that I didn't mean and I raised my voice and overall I was just very, very immature. And um, you might be thinking, she's a pastor. Like, how is she a pastor? I'm a work in progress, okay? Like, I am imperfect, just like everyone else. <laughs> and I need Jesus like everybody else, probably more than everyone else. And, um, but this little beef of ours, maybe it wasn't so little, but part of it took place in the car, which means that it was in front of our kids. And, um, you know, I've heard lots of different practices and tools about fighting in marriage, right? Like, don't fight in front of your kids. Don't fight in the bedroom. Like, you know, all these different things. And um, can I just tell you, everything that I've ever heard goes out the window, right? Like, I am upset. Like, my emotions are high. I'm just like, oh, forget all of that. Like, who cares, right? And I'm just like yelling and like, you got to know how I feel, right? And I like say all these things. And, um, <laughs> Here's what I realized after all of that, after he still puts up with me. Um, I realized that as much as I want to, I'm not going to be able to shield my kids from relational conflict. I'm not. That's just a fact of life. But what I can do is I can show them what reconciliation looks like. You can show them what reconciliation looks like. And, and it's hard. Like, I'm going to be super honest with you. Like, it is hard to be reconciled with someone. It's hard. And for me, like, sometimes I have this tendency when things get hard to run. Like, uh, I'm, I'm over it. I don't want to do it. Like, let's just, I'm out. Like, deuces, okay. And then like, I can just, like, be done, right? And, like, that's not good. I make a lot of mistakes, and sometimes my pride gets in the way, of course, right? And I'm stubborn, and, you know, so it's easier to just walk away instead of fix it. And um, what I realize is that the best thing I can do, the greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts I could ever give my kids is to show them what reconciliation looks like. I'm still working on it. So believe me, I'm not up here trying to tell you what to do. <laughs> I'm like telling myself, right? Um, but when I'm able to show my kids that in our marriage, it's an opportunity not just for them to see what reconciliation is, but it's an opportunity to see the reality of heaven 
in our home. It's an opportunity for the kingdom of God to be in our home and in our family. And that's my hope and my prayer, not just for my family, for me and my family, but for you and yours. Now tonight, I have three reflection questions for you for us to go over in home groups. Or really, I want to challenge us. If you're not in a home group, take some time this week and just sit before the Lord and reflect on these questions. And the first one is this. If I am honest, when it comes to relational conflict, is reconciliation always my goal? Is reconciliation always my goal? And the second second is this. What is the most difficult part of reconciliation? Is it being the one who points other people back to Jesus? Because, I mean, sometimes when people come and vent to you, right, and like someone did them dirty, and that's your friend, or that's your family, or that's your kid, like you just want to take their side, right? Or if it's your kid, you want to go like bust up the other kid, right? You know, like you, like you want to take their side, and so sometimes it is. It's hard to point people back to Jesus. Or is it difficult to be humble and courageous and seek the reconciliation? Or is the most difficult part for you to embrace the person back who has wronged you? What's the most difficult part and why? And the third question, this is, for me, this is probably one of the tougher questions, is in light of how I handle relational conflict, what does it communicate to others about Jesus? What does it say to others about Jesus? And, and please hear me when I say this. This question is not for us to get down on ourselves. It's not for me to condemn any of you or, or me or anything like that. But here's what I want us to understand is that as believers, as Christians, we are the tangible representation of Jesus on earth. We are the tangible representation of Jesus. And for those around us, we may be the closest Jesus they will ever get to. And so it's so important for us to understand this and to know where we are and to kind of wrestle with how do I handle conflict? And I always think about it like this. As a salesman of a company they're a representative of that company. Yes, they're trying to sell products, but they are a representative of that, con- of that company. They represent it. People look at that person as the face of the company, whether that's the owner or just the salesperson. They look at that person as a representative of the company. You can have a great product but be a terrible salesperson, right? And I think about it recently, we went to um, some dealerships, I'm not gonna say where, car dealerships, right? And we were like trying to buy a car. And uh, like we had some terrible experiences, we did. Great products, great cars, terrible salespeople. Didn't wanna help us, didn't wanna acknowledge us. And it's like, but you have such a great product, you know? But what it did for me, I don't want your product. Even though it's so great, I don't want it. Because honestly, like you're not being that great right now, you know? 
It's the same thing. We have the best product in the world. We do. We really do. I am a salesman of that product. And I'm not trying to sell it because I want my, I want to look good or I'm trying to perform or I want my stock to go up in the company. No. I'm trying to sell it because this is the best thing in the world and everyone should have it. That's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm trying to sell it. But if I am not that great of a salesman, <laughs> nobody's going to want this no matter how good it is. And so this question is not to tell you how junk of a salesperson you are, but what it is, is an opportunity for us to see how much we can grow. And we can always grow. We can always get better at being a salesperson. We can always get better at being a representation of Jesus. Always. Always get better. There's so much potential and so much room for us to grow. And the best part is we are going to grow together and do it together. But it's going to take work. It's going to take work on our part. But it excites me, family, that we have this opportunity for growth in being able to represent Jesus on earth. And as long as we're here, as long as he has us on earth, we have this opportunity to show people who he is. I am excited about that, and I hope that you are too. So family, let's pray tonight. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for who you are. And I thank you, God, just for your grace upon our lives. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus, who has reconciled us to you. And God, I pray that as we are here on this earth as your representatives, God, that we would represent you well. Help us, Lord. Help us when it comes to relational conflict. Help us. Help us to be willing. Help us to be humble. Help us, Lord, to be reconciled with one another so that ultimately people will see you. Help us to love like you do. Help us to, to see people the way that you do, Lord. God, thank you for allowing us to be your representatives. Thank you for the opportunities of growth. Thank you for the opportunities to just be more like you. Continue to mold us. Father, we are yours. We are yours, and we love you, God, and we adore you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.